if the purpose is to, to go out and do a pretty extended you know duration maybe that 90 minute two hour um, even even longer um, type session you know with high quality intervals um, chasing some race specific targets in that case then the answer is yeah you, you definitely need to fuel up before you go out. Hello and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm your host, Steph Gaskell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alan McCubbin. How are you, Alan? Yeah, very well, thanks. I had a great time doing episode one, both parts A and B, with our scientist, Louise Burke, and our athlete, Evan Dunphy. And yeah, really looking forward to getting into the next topic today. Yeah, yeah, me too. So here on The Long Munch, we're going to take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes ask. So um, it's the type of stuff that we talk about in our training sessions at the cafe with your, with your training partners. And we're, we're really wanting to try and break it down into, you know, kind of some easy to understand and practical um, advice for you guys to, to take home. So Alan and I are both... A, qualified sports dietitians and uh, researchers at Monash University here in Melbourne, Australia. Um, and we, we, we both work in running, cycling and, and multi-sport nutrition for at least, you know, 15 years or so, um, working with all different ranges of, of athletes. So anyway, let's, let's get stuck into episode two uh, today. What's, uh, what are we answering today, Alan? Yeah, another very common question that people ask, what do I eat for my long training sessions? Now, it doesn't matter whether you're someone training for your first ever half marathon or marathon, or you're you're an ultra endurance athlete doing some sort of crazy self-sufficient race across the desert. Uh, This will be a question that no doubt comes up time and time and time again. So, Alan, I believe that you've got something to uh, to get off your your chest. A bit of a rant happening. Yeah, just like you last time, Steph. There's you know, always topics that come up in nutrition and, and particularly sports nutrition, whether it's through social media, whether it's a conversation you have with someone who doesn't know you're a sports dietitian, and you kind of <laughs> sit there and smile and nod and yeah. Stay low. Yeah, exactly. And then you just sort of think, or you say to your colleagues afterwards, oh, "Don't get me started." So yep. this is what, yep. what I would be saying that about recently. Now, the topic today is what I should be eating before my long training session. And a lot of the purpose of, of why you might be asking that question or uh, deliberately altering what you eat or don't eat before a long training session is to try and increase the amount of fat that your body uses during exercise. So it's not just with you know the, the low-carb, high-fat diet that we discussed in, in episode one, but it can also be by manipulating whether we fuel for a particular training session or not, as opposed to you know eating that way all the time. And a lot of people would do that because uh, they want to increase the amount of fat that their body is using during exercise, and they equate fat burning or fat oxidation, if you like, with body fat loss. Uh, and that can be sometimes the case, but it's not guaranteed and it's not necessarily the case. And I guess the main thing is it's not – those two things aren't the same thing. Fat burning or fat oxidation is not body fat loss. It can be, but it's not guaranteed. Body fat loss happens over a period of time. 
you know, weeks, months often. Um, and what happens in any, you know, couple of hours of training doesn't necessarily determine that. And when you stop training and you kick your feet up on the couch afterwards, there's a whole process that your body goes through there, which doesn't necessarily guarantee that the fat loss at the end of the day or the week or the month is any greater because you're burning more fat, quote unquote, than before. So yeah, oftentimes people say, oh, I, I, I do fasted training because it helps me lose body fat. And I think, oh, don't get me started, Steph. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it's just where things just can be so easily misinterpreted, can't they? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, so the question for podcast number two is, what should I eat before a long training session? And um, who do we have uh, on the podcast today, Alan, to help us answer that? Yeah, Dr. Sam Impey. So Sam is a uh, sports scientist and nutritionist. He now consults to the Mitchelton Scott professional cycling team. But prior to, to working in professional cycling, um, Sam did his PhD at Liverpool John Moores University in the UK. And his area of research was specifically on fueling for training sessions and what that does to the body's adaptations to training. And, and quickly, because we talk a lot about this during the um, during this discussion, is what we mean by adaptations to training. So essentially, obviously, the reason that we do training, apart from hopefully the fact that we enjoy it, is the fact that our body gets better as a result of training, which makes us faster, stronger, whatever it is. And that's because of these adaptations. So what Sam's research looked at is whether you manipulate the amount of uh, food and particularly the carbohydrate that you eat leading into and during those training sessions, whether that has an influence on what happens in those hours or days after training in terms of the benefits or the adaptations our body makes to training. Yep. Yeah. Yep. A question that, you know, everyone wants answered really. Um, so yeah, let's, let's get stuck into it. Yep. Sounds great. Welcome, Sam, to the podcast. Hey, guys. Great, great to be here. Thank you for having me on. The topic today, what should I eat before and during my long training sessions? So first of all, Sam, is this a question that you see a lot from the athletes you work with? Do they ask you this quite a bit? Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's probably the most common question, I think, that, um, that yeah, you kind of get as a practitioner, um, especially once, um, I guess, once athletes kind of get into it a little bit more um, and start to kind of really question and understand how nutrition can actually help their training adaptation as opposed to just, um, you know, benefit the racing. I think um, particularly with, you know, a lot of um, younger athletes, uh, what we see is that, you know, there's a high importance placed on on getting race nutrition correct. Um, but actually the, the kind of link and, and how that translates to nutrition and training um, is sometimes missed. And, and kind of once people start to, to pick up that idea, um, then actually is when you, yeah, you really get uh, a whole heap of questions around, you know, what, you know, what should I do in this situation? What should I do in X situation? What should I do in Y situation? You know, um, so which, which can be, um, it can be difficult to answer sometimes because quite often the, uh, the answer is, well, you tell me, um, you know, um, kind of act as a sounding board, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a very, very common question. So, um, but, you know, uh, one that I think is important to try and give good answers to. 
Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head there that often people focus on sort of the, the race day nutrition side of things first and then come back and think, oh, hang on, what about training? And I guess when you think about it, you spend a hell of a lot more time training for most people than you do racing. So it makes sense that that's probably going to actually have a bigger impact on the, the, the outcome than the race day stuff in a lot of cases. 100%, yeah. I mean, if you, I mean, particularly, it's probably even greater for that, the kind of recreational component who, in terms of, you know, period of time will probably spend 99% of their, of their year, um, you know, doing, doing training orientated, um, type work and, you know, might only, might only hit, um, a few kind of key races a year, maybe, or, um, yeah, maybe a little bit more than that if you're a, a keen recreational athlete. But yeah, as you say, the, the vast majority is, is definitely training based. So take the, take the opportunity to make the most of that while you can. Yeah. Yep, awesome. Now, I guess the question is around you know, eating before and during long training sessions. I guess the first thing we have to do is really define what a long training session is. And I guess that's going to be different for different types of athletes and, and athletes of different levels as well. And I guess, you know, taking cycling for an example, where you're working at the moment, um, you know, my long training session might be, you know, a couple of hours, two, three hours on the bike. But for you guys, it's probably six or seven. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Um... I mean, I think there's that, there's definitely that sort of, um, yeah, personal point to it, which is, which is really important. So, um, I mean, you know, you'll, you'll know yourself if, if you went out and did, um, you know, a three hour ride, um, and then, you know, went out the next day and did, a, a you know, another three hour ride or start, start backing them up. Um, that, you know, they're going to become progressively harder, um, as that kind of fatigue accumulates. But, you know, it also kind of makes sense that, um, your body is, um, you know, quite well attuned to, um, storing enough calories in terms of carbohydrate and then having the capacity to burn that, that fuel source, um, you know, to, to take you out to that sort of duration. Um, and I think the kind of biggest difference that, that causes the, um, just for that sort of perceptual piece around what is what's a long ride is, is the difference in, you know, an elite athlete's capability to, to actually to store that kind of fuel source, um, and then, you know, to use it effectively. So, um, cause their bodies are just better at holding on to, um, particularly carbohydrate cause it's, it's, it's highly, highly important fuel source, even at low intensities. Um, yeah, you know, because they can hold on to so much of it, actually going out to, to six, seven hours, um, is, is just, you know, a function of their physiology as much as, um, you know, their sort of ability to feed on the bike and, and this kind of stuff as well. Yeah, for sure. And so I think, I guess if we had to put a general sort of rule of thumb around that, I don't, I don't know what you both, you guys both do as practitioners, but I guess I'd be thinking probably at least an hour and a half, like even if it's you know, running or, or cycling, particularly cycling, but even running, I don't know, Steph, I guess you're more running orientated than me. What would you define as kind of a long run session? Yeah. Um, typically sort of I guess 90 minutes and, and beyond, like sometimes we say it's a medium long run um, during the week. Um, but yeah, kind of 90 to, to 120. Yep. Yep. Would be. Yeah. And, and in terms of like, I guess in, intensity becomes important there as well, doesn't it? Because, you know, you can go out for a two hour ride, but if you're just ticking the pedals over or just doing a really easy run, it's not necessarily going to wear you out that much. Whereas if you do the same thing with a whole bunch of intervals in that, or, you know, at a pretty hard, you know, sort of simulated race pace or something like that, it's going to be a completely different kettle of fish. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, I think the, you know, the, the key difference, um, is obviously going to be, um, the type of, type of fuels that you're, you're challenging your body to use. So, um, obviously as, as soon as you kick up towards and, and above, um, I guess what, yeah, what you call, uh, maybe lactate threshold or, um, you know, FTP or critical power. Like, I think there's a whole load of, um, different metrics that are, you know, quite personal in the way that people um, use and apply them. Um, and I think, you know, they, they all have strengths and weaknesses. But I guess the, the crux point for me is when you get above that uh, that point at which, um, you know, you start to see, a, you'd regularly start to see a, an increase in, in the sort of blood lactate concentration or, you know, you start to really get a, a feeling of, you know, the burn in, in your quads or uh, when you're cycling or, um, I mean, for me, my whole body hurts when I start running quickly. So, um, but I'm not a, I'm not a runner. So, um, you, you know, I think when, once you certainly start to get up to those, those higher intensities and, and, you know, certainly working in those higher heart rate zones, um, you know, for sort of extended periods, uh, you know, intervals, whether it's, you know, five to eight minute type work or, or 20 minute type work on the bike or, um, yeah, whatever the comparison would be in, in running, um, you know, I think that's that's certainly when you need to really start taking into account how the duration of the session and the intensity is are also going to be, um, you know, affected. So, um, I mean, I know sort of from a from a running perspective, and then step would be awesome to hear what you think. Um, you know, the the time on feet, um, just the the physical load that you actually get through um, from doing that kind of work in a in a running session is, you know, can be can be pretty exhausting. Yeah, for sure. And I guess the final thing we need to think about with, you know, a, a training session, whatever it is, is kind of the goal or the purpose of the training session, I guess, that, you know, you can go out and do a two or three hour training session, but that could be completely different in, in terms of why you're doing that or what you want to achieve out of it. Mm, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think some of the um, some of the most taxing sessions that you can do are, are sometimes shorter in duration i know i mean my, myself when i started sort of cycling a bit more regularly i always kind of you know you you, you could feel you go and do a real hard um maybe like a hit type workout or you know a, a sprint interval type workout or um you know threshold efforts um particularly if you do it on the on the turbo something like that where um you know you, your session might only be 90 minutes but you come off and you're absolutely cooked um actually when you kind of compare that and you you know you then actually go out and do a three-hour ride but just just ticking over real steady um you know and you could you could kind of get off and and carry on with the rest of your day and you'd be fine but you know yet when you think about it just from a calorie perspective um you know the three-hour ride will often have a, a much bigger calorie requirement than the the short high intensity work but uh you know you feel you feel absolutely cooked after the, the shorter, higher intensity sessions. So, um, and I think that's when you start looking at it that way and then thinking about fuel sources, um, you know, that's obviously the levels of complexity get, get a lot higher and a lot quicker, but, um, it, it sort of really begins to open up a, a bit of an understanding around, you know, the, the different ways that you can challenge, um, challenge your body to, to create an adaptive response by, by changing what and when you eat. Yeah. And I guess, Steph, like thinking from, from your expertise around um, sort of nutrition and gastrointestinal issues as well, there'll be sessions where you might deliberately want to go into it with a lot of carbohydrate because you're trying to simulate a race condition. Um, 
and and that means you know before and and potentially during as well is, is loading up on carbs not because you necessarily need it to do the session but just you're trying to challenge that gut tolerance or at least get your body used to that you know what you're going to be doing in a race scenario so it's not unfamiliar on race day yeah totally and i think that sometimes is when i'm working with the ultra endurance runners they kind of i find some of them get into this um mentality of just training on on little and and not much and you know kind of wanting to get into this fat burning stage and just you know and then and then they they do that and then they get to their race um and they they say oh yeah like maybe i've trained with a bit of carbs but they've done it maybe in one one training session and then they get to the get to their event and the body is just not used to you know um digesting tolerating that that amount and they run into real trouble so it's yeah it's something that i really have to emphasize with with the runners to say i know you may not necessarily need this in your session but the purpose of the session is to do this gut challenge um yeah so yeah definitely understanding the purpose obviously of of what we're doing training wise yeah. do, you, do you find that um to kind of drive that you have to um almost almost periodize the the gut training like to to different blo- either blocks or phases in in terms of race prep yeah yeah definitely um just also in terms of typically the ones that i've been working with they um the more recreational will train with sometimes nothing like they'll go do their four or five hour runs and have nothing or maybe wow. 15 to 20 grams of carbs in that five five hour block yeah. wow. um so so really um you know gradually yeah stepping it you know gradually because otherwise it's just such a shock for their mm. system um so yeah yep gradually chipping away at that at that load Sure. Whereas I guess in your case, Sam, like with the pro cyclists, they're racing so frequently that they probably don't go for those long extended weeks or months without uh, or potentially not having much carbs in training because you're just racing so frequently. Uh, yeah, yeah. In a um, in a normal season, uh, yeah, it's definitely something we worked on a lot coming out of lockdown um, with with the bike rides this year. Actually, particularly, we had to be really strategic with um, exactly as you said, Steph, just, just phasing in particularly as we get closer to the kind of higher, um, as we move away from the base miles into the kind of more specific race type prep, um, this is when we started incorporating, um, okay, let's let's go for 30 grams an hour in the final three hours of this ride. Let's go for 40 grams an hour next week, 50 grams an hour the week after. Um, and as much as anything else, what, what we found is that it actually really helps um, you know, the guys just, just visualize and to understand what, mm-hmm. so you're not trying to sit on the bike while you're in a Peloton going, okay, well, I've had 22 grams from this gel and 30 from this bottle. That's 52. Okay. How much do I need for the rest of the hour? You just, they just look at the food and go, okay, I know it's this, this, and this, and that's my mm-hmm. fueling for the hour done. So I think there's like a dual benefit to it. Um, it, you know, practice, it's just it, when you say it out loud, just practice what you can do on race day. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty simple, but I think, uh, yeah, a lot of people, um, are, are guilty of not doing it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. 
Yep. It's always that thing where they don't want to take anything until they're feeling fatigued. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, and then, or they'll, they'll say they practice it, but they'll do it maybe once or twice or yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Or you're doing it in the taper week. Well, yeah. Yeah. Why you do that? That's <laughs> useless. <laughs> Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I guess um, in terms of then the next question is really a a common question that um, we all get is should I eat, you know, before um, my training session or not? Hmm. I guess can you help expand on, you know, how do you respond to that question? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's a good question. I think first and foremost. So, um, you know, I'd always in, encourage people to to think about that question, and and it comes back to something we touched on before again um, around what is the purpose of the of the training session. So, um, if the purpose is to to go out and do a pretty extended you know duration, maybe that ninety minute, two hour, um, even even longer um, type session, you know, with high quality intervals, um, chasing some race-specific targets. In that case, then the answer is, yeah, you, you definitely need to fuel up before you go out because uh, what we're looking for is a really good quality of training. So, um, and in that circumstance, yeah, it's it's really, really beneficial to, um, to, to fuel up before you go out. And, and you know, if it's if the session's big enough, maybe even think about, um, you know, what the dinner, uh, the, the evening before looks like. So um, in terms of, uh, you know, if, if it's going to be a morning session, then um, by having breakfast, probably what we're doing is is topping up liver glycogen um, and maybe muscle glycogen a, a little bit. So there's, there's two stores of, of um, well, two primary stores, excuse me, of, of glycogen in the body. So, um, you know, and if, if it's going to be a really, really tough session, then actually maybe we need to think about um, what we need to do maybe even the, the evening before or if we've got a session later on in the day, you know, throughout breakfast and, and lunch of that of the same day to, to really make sure that our muscles have the, have the fuel that, that they need to, to achieve the work that we're doing. Um, but I guess on the flip side to that, if the session is kind of more focused around, um, maybe there's a, it's, it's a session that's there to, to kind of do some base miles. Um, if you're chasing some body composition goals, um, then actually maybe we look at a session where, you know, you could go out and do it, um, without having any fuel beforehand. So, um, I guess the reason for that and, and what changes inside the body is that, um, it, it, particularly if you get up and do a session fasted is that you have um, kind of uh, your body's in a in a state where it's it's kind of ready to um, to oxidize uh, or to burn um, a little bit more fat so there's more fat circulating in the blood anyway um, and you just create the environment um, that, the, that sort of suits the um, you know suits that that kind of quite high fat burning capacity um, or higher fat burning capacity. So um, I'm sure there might be some academics who are pulling their hair out now, but um, this is this is the way I explain it to people. So, um, you know, uh, and by, by putting in breakfast or putting in, you know, large amounts of carbohydrate, um, what that does is that it, it shuts down the kind of peripheral lipolysis. Um, so, and, and you get a, a reduction in that, that sort of circulatory fat um, and, you know, an increase in, in obviously circulatory carbohydrates. Um, and so that just, just changes the environment slightly. Um, obviously on those kind of um, 
the rides where you might go out without any fuel, um, then, you know, that's going to be a, a lower intensity. Um, it's probably not, unless you're a really elite kind of athlete, going to be uh, a long session. Um, you know, we, we have guys who go out for, um, frighteningly long periods of time without, without having any, um, any, any breakfast before they go out. Um, I wouldn't advise that for, 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 most recreational athletes, probably all recreational athletes, um, I tend to say sort of, you know, maybe start with doing it for 30 minutes, maybe then 45, maybe then an hour, um, see how you feel. Different people respond differently to, um, to that sort of fasted type training. So don't, don't just set out to go and do two hours if you've never done it before. It's, it's the same as anything else, you know, be, be sensible with it and, um, test it progressively. Yeah. And we have, um, obviously, you have a scenario with, um, you know, talking about the meals leading into it. I mean, I, I tend to talk with my clients about um, like two to three meals beforehand, like thinking about whether they want to be higher or lower in, in carbohydrate, depending on the scenario. <laughs> if you've got that scenario with, I, mean, I guess, a lot of athletes will be training early in the morning and they really struggle to eat breakfast, say, before they train. Does it make, like, obviously, you can eat sort of higher carbohydrate dinner and maybe afternoon snacks or things, you know, the night before and then going out fasted as opposed to having breakfast, you know, first thing in the morning before you go. Is it going to make much difference in that scenario? Like if you've had a big whack of carbohydrate the night before, is that breakfast going to add a lot more value or is it just going to make only a slight difference? Uh, the uh, depends on the size of the breakfast. Um, mm. but I would say it's probably only going to make a, a small difference. Um, you know, kind of as, as I touched on in terms of, um, if you had a, a kind of, yeah, big, big fueling block, uh, for the last couple of meals, then, um, you're going to be in a situation where you have kind of high, uh, muscle glycogen. Um, so it's a really efficient fuel source. So your body's naturally going to, um, kind of start using that pretty early on. Um, but you're, kind of in this paradox situation where you'll also have, if you've come in from an overnight fast, um, you'll also have kind of lowered um, liver glycogen. So that'll create that um, higher circulatory fat environment. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, a, a dual thing to think about in terms of um, trying to understand, yeah, okay, what's my what's my muscle glycogen content like versus, you know, my, my liver glycogen. So, um, and in that context, I guess, yeah, just having the breakfast is, is just going to top up your liver glycogen a little bit. Um, that's obviously important because that's what sustains blood glucose. Um, so you might be, you might get beneficial effects just from having a, a sort of re reduced perception of fatigue, for example. Um, obviously if you're, you know, kind of, um, have higher blood glucose availability, then, you know, you're, you're, brain's going to sort of feel less fatigued, um, in the morning. Um, so, um, but then, you know, you could argue a triple espresso might sort that out as well. So, um, there are <laughs> kind of other ways to get around it. Um, you know, and I guess it comes back to athlete perception at that stage. Um, if you're really chasing a specific calorie goal, then maybe think about what the breakfast is going to do or, um, you know, maybe form it from a, a more protein based, um, source, some eggs, um, you know, with, with spinach or whatever the, whatever the preference is, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of options around how you can chase those sort of specific goals, um, with using, you know, different types of foods and, um, just finding what works best for, for each person, um, and not being afraid to, 
not being afraid to push the boundary a little bit because otherwise you end up eating the same five meals um, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and around all your training. And, and that, that doesn't create any any interest from a, a nutrition standpoint, um, never mind a, a sort of training adaptation point. But on that point, Sam, I think it's a really important one there where you talked about you know the difference between the muscle glycogen and the liver glycogen. Mm. So um, just to explain, so muscle glycogen, once you consume carbohydrate like the day before and it stores as glycogen into your muscles, you can't get it back out again and send it to other parts of the body. So, you know, once it's in there, the only way out is to use it during exercise, essentially. Correct, yeah. Whereas exactly. your liver glycogen is there to top up the blood glucose, the blood sugar. Um, so if it drops like overnight when you're fasted, you'll lose some out of there, but you've still got all that carbohydrate stored in your muscle from the night before. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Very good So I guess in terms of, so say... In, if I'm going out for a long training session um, and I, you know, it's an easy long run, uh, let's say it's four or five hours, um, and I decide to, I guess, train train on the lower end and want those training lower adaptations, is there, what's the point, like how long do I need to go in that run for me to get those training adaptations so is there kind of like a point where um you know i need to exercise for 90 minutes or two hours or or three hours um because then i guess it's like well can i kind of suffer through a few hours of of training a bit lower and then can i start feeding will i will i still get some of those training adaptations and benefits yeah, um, good question. Um, really difficult one to answer in terms of um, how long you need to go to kind of really start chasing the or start yeah seeing those um, you know potential benefits of doing carbohydrate restricted um, training. Um, it's a really good question. Um, the trade the trade off is that a lot of the studies that have been done have um, have actually been done at a much higher intensity. Um, I'm thinking particularly of sort of the low carbohydrate studies where they've, where they've looked at running. Um, some of the fantastic work by sort of Dr. John Bartlett, um, kind of 2013 and um, through to 2015 there in, in, in his PhD, um, where they were sort of exercising it closer to kind of 70% of VO2 max. Um, they actually did it in a, in a glycogen depleted state. So, um, in that context, then they were seeing, you know, certainly large signaling changes, um, within sort of uh, a session that was lasting 45 minutes to an hour. Um, but again, much higher intensity than you'd go out if you were going to go into a, you know, a three, four hour, five hour, um, you know, run as, as you mentioned. So, um, in that context, it's difficult to put a, an exact number on it, but um, if you're if you're accustomed to doing um, four hour runs, um, I'm I would I'm, I would probably if I had to pick a number kind of based on a on a best best guesstimate, um, I would probably say you know I, if you sort of start getting two hours in, um, you, you get to the point where you kind of feel like you're 
you're into that rhythm, but um, you know the you, you can certainly start to feel that there's a bit of a bit of fatigue creeping in a little bit um, when when you're in a faster state. It's it's kind of difficult to tell. Uh, well, actually, in, in any state, it's sort of difficult to tell anything just by feeling. But um, y- you know, I would say if you get to, if your customers are doing a four hour fasted run, get to fifty percent of the way in, and you're going to start taxing the the systems. Um, you know, um, start elevating those the, the stress response on the on the systems that that you're looking to to adapt. Um, I have zero scientific evidence to back that up. That's just my mm. um, yeah. that's that's just my opinion. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, there's always a bit of art and science, isn't there? Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, from a uh, in terms of kind of can you then start feeding towards the back end? Mm. Um, there's actually an, an awesome um, an awesome paper published um, in February of this year um, by a guy I used to work with um, at the University of Birmingham, so um, Tim Podliger, um, who was working with, with Gareth Wallace. So, um, and they actually did a, um, a sleep low intervention. So they kind of glycogen depleted people in the evening, had them come in the next day, um, and then they um, did, it was a one hour, uh, I think it was a one hour sort of steady state um, followed by a time trial. Um, and, and they started feeding um, 15 grams um, every 15 minutes, so one gram an hour, uh, one gram per minute, excuse me, um, 30 minutes into the into the steady state period, as it were. So um, they let them get 30 minutes in, then started feeding them and continued to do it through the through the TT. Um, and actually what, what they found was that the rates of fat oxidation, um, just from a uh, indirect calorimetry, so you know measuring the, the gas exchange um, at the mouth, um, they actually found that the, um, the rates of fat oxidation were sustained um, at those sort of higher rates um, that you'd see, um, you know, with as you'd expect to see doing a, a sleep low intervention, um, despite the fact that they were they were feeding carbohydrates. So um, I think that sort of perceptually is going to make training a lot more um, tolerable. Um, it might really help towards the back end of those those longer, um, you know, sort of fasted or, or potentially sleep low sessions. Um, and, and I think you can you can as long as you're not putting in um, sort of excess, um, you know, excess amounts of, of carbohydrates. Certainly, um, most sessions will probably be of a, of a nature, either duration or intensity um, compensated uh, that, you know, you can actually feed a little bit of carb um, towards the, you know, towards the back end of the session and, and not have to worry that you're dampening those sort of um, adaptive responses that, that you're sort of chasing with, with that type of session. Yeah. And, and on that, you know, we've been talking, you know, throughout this about, you know, training with with less carbohydrate available to the body and that might be beneficial to the body. Can you sort of summarise, you know, uh, for, for athletes out there, what those benefits actually would be? Like what are we talking about when we say that there's these benefits? Uh, to, to kind of periodizing carbohydrate or doing some sessions with, with low carb availability you mean yeah yeah, yeah. um so uh, i guess the, the the sort of potential benefits are um you increase the the body's capability to um utilize fat as a uh, a contributor contributor to to energy production um you can sort of increase the um 
you increase the intensity um, at which you sort of see that 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 flip point where fat oxidation really really dives down and, and carb oxidation really goes up. Um, you know, as as intensity increases, you can sort of shift that a little bit. Um, why that's beneficial um, is. I mean, cycling is, is a particularly good example, um, is because obviously if you have a 250, uh, you know, kilometer stage that's going to take you, um, five and a half, six hours, then, um, you know, the, the greater we can, um, rely on, on the body's fat stores to, to contribute to energy. That's better for us because that then keeps, uh, carbohydrate as much as possible in reserve as, as, as long as, you know, we match it with with good feeding protocols during the race as well, um, so that when it comes to critical, uh, you know, climb on a hill or um, you know a sprint for for a finish, we have a you know a fuel source um, in reserve that that's really going to just determine those um, you know potentially influence those those performance orientated outcomes um, in in running, um, for example. Um, I guess when it comes down to sort of things like the marathon. Um, if you're fast enough, um, then you know, and you're, get, you're getting pretty close to that that two-hour barrier, um, then it could kind of this sort of low-carb training is is probably going to help with um, just like a, a bit of an uh, efficiency um, type work, or, or you know, not that they struggle with body composition, but you know, it's obviously a um, it's a good way to. Um, to, to alter any body comp if you if you need to do that, um, but I think the, the the important piece that I think is often um, isn't talked about is that it's also really important to train with high carbohydrate availability as well, so that you have the capacity to uh, to, to you know use carbs as a fuel source very very quickly um, in those sort of performance situations. So um, I, I don't I wouldn't say that you know training with low carb is um, the ubiquitous way to train because it's it's absolutely not. Um, but I would say is that it 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 challenges the the lower end of the kind of intensity spectrum to become um, more efficient and more useful at, at supporting the the higher intensity end of the spectrum, which is quite often what you know defines performance. That that's the way I think about it per se. So yeah, and so it's then a matter of yeah, as you said, like. If just going you know, at a low to moderate intensity all day is all that's important to you, then, you know, that high carbohydrate availability may be a little less important. Um, but if you need to be able to switch between the two, like in in cycling, uh, road cycling, then obviously you need to be able to have the ability to do both. You don't want to uh, be really good at one and really crappy at the other. Exactly. Metabolic flexibility. That's exactly it. Yeah. 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 Is it just the, the training adaptation um is it just that we're doing that training low to be able to burn, you know, and oxidize fat better? Um, or are there other adaptations that we're getting from from doing this? Yeah, uh, it's, I, I guess the the, uh, the the top line piece is going to be around the fat oxidation, um, but you know there's there's a lot of um, certainly from a from a, a muscular perspective, um, there's evidence that um, you know potentially you're going to um, support the adaptations of of the mitochondria um, inside the muscle, so the the powerhouse of the cell. Um, so that's um, that's kind of a, a sort of 
the the secondary the secondary line i guess the um depending on the person they might be more interested in in knowing about the um yeah the fat oxidation or, or that's mm. kind of the, the big picture way to think about it i guess but um you know the, there's certainly a lot of evidence that would suggest that um we might be able to aid um adaptation on a on a mitochondrial level yeah for sure Okay, so I'm going to take you back, Sam, a few years to your PhD, which you did at Liverpool John Moores University in the UK, um, and a couple of terms that came out of papers that you were publishing um, that have sort of gone a bit nuts on social media, and everyone talks about these terms now. And um, the first one is fuel for the work required. So this is a term that was, uh, I think, the, the, the tagline on, on one of your papers. And I remember when I saw that and then I saw the, like, the figure in there with like, the red, the green, the yellow sessions. I'm looking at that and I'm looking at the stuff that I'm giving to clients. I'm like, damn it, I should have come up with a catchy name like that. <laughs> and I think people, you know, a lot of people, I guess, have been doing it for, for a while but didn't come up with the catchy name. So, first of all, where did the name come from? Who came up with it? Uh, that's, uh, that's a sort of joint, uh, joint piece between uh, James Morton and I. So, um I think if you ask him, he'd say he came up with it. Um, <laughs> I think I'm going to say that I came up with it and then have a happy balance in the middle. Um, when we thought about it and, and James was working with, um, with Team Sky at the time, so uh, as they were, um, and, you know, kind of um, we were sort of looking at, at the, the training that we saw athletes doing and, um, and, and you know, what, Kind of what the best athletes in the world are doing, um, and, and you know how how we thought um, this interacted with you know the, the study that we designed, and um, and it kind of just you know actually sort of yeah it sort of intrinsically made sense that um, you know you, you actually need to think about what the what the outcome of your what the goal of your training session is, and then fuel in a way that's appropriate to, to support that goal. Um, and that kind of, yeah, that, you know, the, the term sort of ran from there. So, um, yeah, which is, it's, it's good. It's catchy. I'm worried it's going to be engraved on my gravestone, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly, it's tweetable anyway. That's the main thing. Yeah. I think you should have trademarked it. You would have made a fortune. Oh yeah. I didn't think about <laughs> Um, okay, and so you know, I think we've we've pretty much already talked about what that actually means for an athlete is thinking about you know the kind of training session that they're doing and then you know adjusting uh, and particularly when we talk about fuel for the work required, we're particularly talking about the carbohydrate component there in terms of the fuel, uh, and then the work required obviously depends on the as we said the session in terms of how long it is, how intense it is, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, the other term that that comes up in one of those papers is this concept of the glycogen threshold hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously a bit of a, a mouthful. Um, but do you want to talk about what that means and and where that fits into this whole picture? Uh, yeah, so I mean it's a it's a a, a very very theoretical. Um, sort of domain of um, glycogen availability or glycogen storage level within the muscle um, that is probably unique to each person um, and probably unique between between sports as well. But what we saw is that actually a lot of the really sort of beneficial or a lot of the signaling markers that would indicate, you know, beneficial adaptations tended to really jump up in their potency when people exercised or at least finished exercise within a, a relatively narrow um, sort of band of, of muscle glycogens. And we sort of hypothesized that actually maybe it's 
um, yeah, maybe it's once you get into that lower glycogen state, um, it produces a sort of, uh, well, we, we hypothesize it, it sort of changes the, the kind of internal environment and, and internal stress response almost within the muscle um, as you get towards those lower levels of glycogen that um, actually maybe then activate some of those um, some of those signaling molecules and signaling pathways that, that drive adaptation. So um, it's it's yeah purely purely theoretical. Um, so um, and it, and you know it might be that you don't have to do all your training in there, but just try and get you know a portion of your your training to finish in there. Um, and if you start if you start in that bandwidth, you probably don't have very long to train because um, you're normally pretty cooked by the time you get down to those lower levels. So. Um, there's yeah it's 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 hugely theoretical um at the moment so um but it's um it's an interesting concept anyway so um yeah we'll we'll see how uh, see how long it takes for someone to disprove it <laughs> and so putting all these different pieces of the puzzle together that we've talked about today and correct me if i'm wrong but this is just so i guess the way i've been interpreting it essentially you know that that hypothesis is that you know you finish the training session with a certain level of depletion of glycogen in the muscle to then get those beneficial adaptations that we've already been talking about and so then the fueling for the work required is i guess to say okay well we want to be able to do however much work we want to be able to do in the training so we need to fuel appropriately for that but we also want to fuel to make sure that the glycogen ends up in that you know reasonably depleted state at the end so we get the benefits of that in the post-exercise period when our body is adapting to training and so it's balancing those two things together to get the outcome that you want perfect yeah exactly right yeah. yeah that's exactly it so um and yeah just i think the yeah the sort of other end of the scale being um being careful not to overfuel as well um you know and because there's equally you know potential risks of um suppressing some of those adaptations if you're massively overfueled for the for the session that you're you're trying to do so um yeah it's, it's just trying to find that that balance point in the middle as you say yeah cool yeah and i um i think the other thing just for for the listeners so um because i know some of the athletes i work with they may go crazy and think oh now i just need a train fasted and i'm just gonna burn all my fat etc etc um just to make the point that as we've said it's not every session that we want to be doing this we really need to think about the goals of that session um and then also just being very careful with perhaps who does do those sessions, you know, and, and I guess that's a bit for practitioners or working with them, but, um, you know, just being mindful of things like energy availability and, um, and those types of things for. Yeah. I mean, yeah, fantastic point. Um, particularly around the, the energy availability piece, um, probably more, um, more relevant to, to female athletes. Um, you know, certainly in this context. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, the, um, as I say, the, the sort of aggregation or accumulation of, uh, of faster training is, is something that should be done done slowly and, and, and monitored um yeah which is a, a fantastic point so yeah thank you for thank you for bringing that up actually that's a that's a really crucial point and, and and as you said as well um 
you know, it's it's absolutely not every session. Um, it's, it's what is the is it appropriate to the time of year? Is it appropriate to the phase of training? Is it appropriate to your sport in general? Like maybe there are some sports where it's actually not going to be useful. Um, yeah, you know, does it does it fit within your program? Does it fit within your lifestyle? Um, is it going to be beneficial? Um, if so, then then go for it. Um, if not. Then don't. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. And so uh, apart from, I mean, the energy availability side of it, which I guess is that concept of, I guess, chronically underfueling your body relative to what, what you need given the amount of training that you're doing, are there any other risks that you see in sort of training too low with carbohydrate too often? Mm. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the, the most obvious one is, is not achieving um, the kind of quality of work that you're looking for. So, um, if you have a coach who prescribes you a training plan um, and you just go into it underfueled and you can't achieve the, the goals of that plan, then you're not going to adapt to the level that, that you need to. So, there's obviously a huge trade-off there. Um, when you're in a, a very kind of carbohydrate-suppressed um environment in the body you're sort of at a slightly greater risk of um potentially catching picking up bugs coughs colds urtis that sort of stuff um so that's obviously kind of something to be to be aware of um so those are the, the sort of two major ones um it obviously it's um Sometimes it's just a pretty unpleasant place to be. So, uh, you know, don't, don't want anyone uh, being too unhappy for too long anyway. So um, I, I think that's probably the, the third, but, yeah, slightly lesser lesser important of the points. So, now, I guess the other thing that I'm always interested in is the effects on, on the gut, particularly <laughs> for the ultra um, athletes and runners, just in terms of, you know, we think that, well, we know carbohydrate can be protective and um, protective to the gut. Um, and so, again, just for, for the individuals being mindful that they're not doing all of their sessions or their racing with such low carbohydrate that then that starts to impact on, on, gut, on gut health as well. That's uh, Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really important point, I think, for sure. Yep. <laughs> All right, so the final um, bit I'm going to ask you, Sam, is probably the, the devil's advocate question here, is um, obviously we can we can go into the lab and we can manipulate the amount of carbs and the amount of glycogen people have in their body before, during and, and after training, and we can kind of say, well, based on that, we think there's some benefits to, to manipulating all of this stuff, and we've got, you know, your glycogen threshold hypothesis as an example. But in, in the, the real world, do you find anecdotally and, and from the work that you do with athletes, do you feel that there is a benefit? And if so, is it a big benefit? Is it a tiny benefit? Is it a benefit that only matters if you're trying to win Olympic medals compared to if you just want to go out there and, um, you know, get a PB on a half marathon or something like that? Where do you sit with the sort of the practical usefulness of all this stuff? Um, from my experience, I've seen that it really can have um, a benefit to performance um, across all levels, actually, um, as long as it's applied in the right way. Um, so for me, at the, certainly at the elite level of, of cycling, I think um, it's creating um it's creating a just a different way to challenge the body um to adapt so um you know we can we can create a lot of stress uh, or plenty of stress through um through doing work on the bike but actually 
now we have an additional way to um, create stress by, by manipulating the, the energy um, and the carbohydrate that's available inside the body. So, um, yeah, we, we've used it um, pretty successfully in the team to, to kind of bring about improvements in performance, which is which is awesome. Um, for for the person kind of who just wants a PB um, on their their local half marathon, then I think this this also has application. Um, just in terms of um, you know being able to, in the same way that you you kind of wouldn't just you wouldn't just go out and run. 10k every day if you were training for a half marathon you'd do some longer runs you'd maybe do some some runs with some pickups or some you know some 1k um you know a little, a little bit faster or you know uh, and in that same sense in the way that you change your training you know why would you go into every training session in the same nutrition state um you know if you think about it in that term then um you know why not create uh, an additional training adaptation just by making small changes to um you know the, the the way that you fuel before during and after you know some of those key training sessions so um and in that sense i think it gives a you know you don't have to make massive changes it can just be small things that um you know just just add on the those small percentages to to really drive uh, and help people sort of achieve their achieve their goals yep cool yeah and i think you alluded it to it before um obviously the other thing for for some athletes uh, particularly you know obviously for elite athletes as well but for for all athletes is that you know it might also be thinking about um things like weight loss and then manipulating the total calories in your diet to bring about weight loss independent of any of these kind of adaptations within the muscle and that sort of thing and obviously you know that's a whole episode in itself so we won't go into detail about that now but for the the person who's you know training for a marathon and wanting to lose a little bit of weight along the way or something like that or a triathlon or whatever it is then then it can be a useful strategy from that perspective regardless of the the training adaptation i suppose as well exactly yeah exactly so um yeah 100%. Cool. All right. I'm going to hand it over to Steph for the bonus round. Bonus round. Um, fun time now. Um, so a good, good question for you. So if you could do anything other than what you are doing now in your job role, in your mm -hmm. work, what, what would you choose? What would you do? I'd be a chef. Easy. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Is that something you wanted to do beforehand or is that sort of since working with the team and having the, you know, the chefs that work with the guys in the, the big races? Uh, it's something, something I've, I, I mean, I, I love cooking um, anyway. Um, so I kind of worked in restaurants, you know, when I was, when I was younger through, through my teenage years and stuff. So um, I like the idea of being a chef, whether practically it would actually play out as being enjoyable, I don't know. But um, yeah, I think being a being a chef would be awesome. So um, yeah, we have um, yeah two full time chefs, um, Nikki, um, Nikki and Sean on the team, who are both absolutely incredible. So um, they're, they're also a big inspiration for me. And um, just you see the the food they put out every day, and I'm like, oh, that's that's class. So um, mm. yeah, but. but yeah, chef would be would definitely chef. be one for me. Nice. I, mm. I was a um, bagel chef tonight. I did some New oh, York yeah. style bagels. Mm -hmm. oh, good, good effort. I, do you know yeah. what? It's not what I ventured into. I don't want to have to like boil them and then steam them, and it oh, seems like a lot of effort. No, it's actually not that bad. Um, it's not that bad. Yeah, and it's very worth it compared to some of the bagels we get here. Um, yeah, it's yeah. I'm Give gonna have to go. try that. Cool. Done. Yep. 
Yep. <laughs> check, check out my Instagram. I've got some yep. good bagels on there. I'll do that. <laughs> One thing on your bucket list, Sam, that you that you haven't done that you want to do? Oh, um, but, but, but my girlfriend uh, climbed Kilimanjaro a couple of years ago. Um, that that I'd, that's something I'd really like to do. She she had an unbelievable experience, so um, I'd like to go back and do that. That'd be cool. I have done that, and I absolutely bloody froze. Was she freezing? She was, yeah. She was pretty calm at yep. the top. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, oh, wow, that's an awesome. awesome awesome experience that's that's cool um and what about the sport so um what's what's a sport that you've just always thought i don't know wow that's really out there how cool would that be to do um i again i like the idea of being a formula one driver that would be pretty awesome um, yes but the um the america's cup sailing guys um i think they're they're pretty incredible athletes so um and and the sport in general yeah it just looks looks pretty awesome the that combination of like tech for the design that goes into every piece of the the boat and the kit they have and that sort of stuff along with the um yeah you know the the skill set that they have as sailors looks, looks pretty awesome to me yeah yeah. Um, and a little bit more serious, I guess. Um, do you live by any sort of specific piece of advice or a particular motto, like anything that kind of gives you a bit of drive or? Yeah, very, very serious one. Um, a beer in the hand is worth two in the fridge. <laughs> Love it. I like it. <laughs> that's, that's gold. Yep. Good. <laughs> very important muscle. Um, and then the final final one for you which might be the same um <laughs> what's your most prized pos possession and why oh uh that's a real that's a good question i actually don't think um, i honestly don't think i've got one um no, no uh, yeah no, there's nothing i feel nothing hugely uh, um well we, we we put a new kitchen in the house so i'm pretty passionate about that i love that so that'd be that'd be, nice. i can't take that with me so or shouldn't I? yeah any special any special new toys for that uh no i just i've got a really nice gas burner setup which i've wanted for ages i've been <laughs> living in rented accommodation they always have mm. crap electric ones so um no yeah i know and one actually one of the chefs nikki one of the chefs gave me a pretty awesome knife that he he won in a competition as a as a moving in present so i was uh i quite i quite like that so my kitchen and my knife yeah yeah simple awesome, awesome. Cool. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time, Sam. It's been great. I thought we were going to have a 20-minute chat. It's got about an hour, but um, no, that's all right. Um, obviously, it's, it's you know, it's, it's one of those topics, as, as you said at the start, it's one of the most common topics that people ask about. It's one of the most complex ones to, to crack open and, and pull out because there's so many different permutations and combinations. And as you said, the science is still evolving mm. a lot in this area. So it's hard to give, you know, a definitive, you know, do this, do that, do that kind of a, an answer mm. to a lot of this stuff. So, um, no, thanks so much for your time. Cool. Yeah, no, no problem. All right. So summing up from today's conversation with Sam is in terms of, you know, do we, what do we fuel in terms of before a long training session? Is it worthwhile doing or not? Um, it really depends on, what our training session is, you know, what what's the duration, what's the intensity, and what's the purpose of that particular session. I mean, we 
we just need to, you know, sort of slow down and, and really think about our training and, and what that purpose is. Um, and that will then help us answer in terms of, you know, okay, well, for this session, hey, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm okay to, to, to feel a bit shit when I'm going through that session um, because I want these training adaptations and I don't need the intensity. Um, it, it's going to be longer duration um, compared to, all right, I've got a, a quality session. So as an example for a runner, I might be having, you know, five by 1K intervals or, or something like that, you know, and I really want to get each of those reps right um, and on target pace. Well, I, then that's not a session that I want to sacrifice on. Um, so I'm going to really fuel well prior to, to that session. Um, so anything I've missed there, Alan, do you think? No, I mean, I think the, the, the whole, I guess, crux of this, and I guess the way I would tend to explain it to the athletes that I work with is you know, ultimately you have the goal that you want to achieve and, you know, that should essentially dictate the, you know, your training schedule or your training protocol that your coach is um, doing or, you, you know, you're doing your own one, that's fine. Um, and so I kind of see it as the, like the end goal dictates how you train. Mm-hmm. How you train dictates how you feel. And so it's 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 trying to match up the eating to the training so they're complementary and you're achieving the, the best possible outcome of training because of what you're eating. And I guess, you know, the training is driven by the overall end goal. And so, you know, the training needs to drive the nutrition rather than the other yeah. way around. Yeah, for sure. Um, and and I think also just to, to know that we uh, also just need to reach that that threshold as well you know to get those adaptations so um yeah making sure we are entering into that session um in that training low state if that's what what we're after in terms of those adaptations um uh, yeah. yeah absolutely so that wraps up episode two what should i eat before my long training session hopefully that's answered that question in terms of the factors you need to think about uh, and the fact that there is no single answer to that question that will suit every person and every situation. Our very next episode, we'll look at this from an athlete's perspective and we are going to interview a triathlete actually that I work with, Emma Jeffcoat. Uh, and Emma is a, a professional triathlete who is, is training for hopefully for Tokyo next year. Um, so she's an Olympic distance triathlete um, and also does mixed team relay as well. And she can talk about her experience with uh, modifying her fueling around her training schedule and, and how that kind of works out for her. Yeah, because I think, you know, definitely the questions that the, the athletes and listeners will be asking now is like, okay, well, how do I approach train load? Like, are there different ways that I can do that? And so in this next episode, um, don't worry, we will be helping you out with those um, strategies and, and giving you a, a, a range of, of how you can do that. And Emma will be showcasing, you know, how she goes about it um, with her training and the work that you've been doing with her, which will be great. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. All right. So that wraps us up. If you have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, feel free to hit us up on social media at The Long Munch on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Very happy to chat to you and hear about the questions that you have and you have with your running or cycling or triathlon buddies, the sorts of things that go around in circles and never get answered. We'll answer them here. Yeah. Yep. It's one of our favorite things to do and 
you know, it's um, helps lead the way to research as well is just keep asking questions and we don't always have the answer, but we're always keen to find out. Absolutely. All right, so we'll leave it there for today. Hopefully everyone's enjoyed this podcast and we'll see you for the next episode very soon. See ya.